no matter what the outcome of the election has been or will be, don't let yourself feel despair. Please grieve because grieving is the flip side of your love. Grieve away if you have to, but don't feel despair because this is about proving every day that there are people on this planet who live in love and not in greed, who live for the future and not for today, and who are your allies. We're all in this community together and you're not alone. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. We often say that working for a liberal future on this planet is going to require all hands on deck and that everyone has skills to contribute to the massive transition and changes that must lie ahead. Someone who embodies this very idea is Dr. Genevieve Gunther, who as a former Shakespeare and Renaissance literature scholar is now using her extensive knowledge of language, rhetoric, and the power of communication to provide tools to strengthen how we talk about the climate crisis and push those in the media to integrate the climate crisis into their reporting. In 2018, she founded End Climate Silence, an organization dedicated to push the media to connect news stories about extreme weather and climate impacts directly to the climate crisis and its causes. For too long, the coverage has been silent about climate science, especially when it comes to already reported stories that are undoubtedly connected to the climate. Dr. Gunther is also an affiliate faculty member at the Tishman Environment and Design Center at the New School in New York. In this episode, we talk with Genevieve about what drove her to become active in the climate space, using literature to inform stronger climate communications, and why we need to hold the media accountable when it comes to this crisis, the greatest challenge of our time. Hello. Hello. It's Genevieve. Is this Maria? Yes, this is she. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for accommodating this crazy day that I seem to be having. Oh my God, of course. Is everything okay? Yeah, I, um, I actually um, was able to get a haircut <laughs> outside um, and it was like my one opportunity to do it. And I literally had not cut my hair since, um, January. So, um, it's just, it's been really bad because I've been doing, you know, webinars and these like, you know, Facebook live things and various TV interviews with like this, like aging hippie hair and I couldn't stand <laughs> it. <laughs> I was like, okay, I've got to get this haircut if I can push the podcast back for half an hour and you, 
thank God you said yes. (laughs) Oh my God, of course. I actually feel that so much. My hair is in the exact same state. I mean, people on Zoom are like, what's going on? Because it just kept growing and it looks just a bit ridiculous at this point. Um, So I feel that. Well, one day you two will have another haircut and it'll feel (laughs) awesome. (laughs) I can imagine. I've been looking forward to it. Um, But I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you could be on. Um, I'm so excited to be talking with you today. And I must say, I'm a huge fan of your Twitter feed. I think that's how I first um, came across your work. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me to be on. It's wonderful and an honor to be here. And I'm I'm glad you enjoy my Twitter. It's... Um, it's definitely become a community for me, um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm not, you know, my, my background is in English literature and in Shakespeare studies. So, um, most of the people that I've met who are also working on climate change, I'm, I've met through Twitter. So it's just been, you know, a real lifeline for me to find other people in the climate movement and to feel like, you know, we're all fighting this fight together. So Absolutely. And it's a funny thing because for a really long time, I was very reluctant to even go on Twitter. I felt just maybe a little overwhelming in a sense, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with the fast pace and a lot of, you know, negativity that can be on. Uh, But I fully agree, even through this year, finding community and just a way to to express opinions and understand that other people are going through very similar things that we are, I think is a super positive and wonderful side um, of, of social media. Yeah, I agree. I really agree. And, you know, the climate scientists on Twitter have been so generous and, you know, have taught me so much about the issue. um, And I've learned so much from other activists. So, yeah, for me, it's been a tremendous resource. Um, So I don't know, I I recommend it to everybody who's interested in climate change to just to start following some climate scientists and, you know, climate organizations and climate journalists and like New York Times climate um, and Mm -hmm. take it from there. Absolutely. And we'll definitely get into a lot of that um, a little awesome. later on. But first off, um, I wanted to ask you, how, how are you doing? How have this year been for you and how, how are you holding up right now? Well, um, I'm very, very tired, obviously. Um, you know, I'm a mom to a 10-year-old boy whose school has gone remote. Um, so uh whatever domestic labor I had before the pandemic has been, you know, quadrupled. Um, my husband has done a lot of it too, but you know, it makes it challenging. Um, and you know, the news about the breakdown of our climate and the things that are already starting to happen to Americans and to people all over the world is, you know, really hard to absorb. Um, it fills me with grief and it fills me with rage to see the entire West coast on fire and have the president of our country claim that it's going to get cooler. The climate is just going to get cooler. You just watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, luckily enough, I am someone who's motivated by anger. Um, the outrage that I feel towards these people who are so wantonly destroying the possibility of ongoing life on our miraculous planet actually keeps me working hard and keeps me going. Um, Um, But, you know, the political situation is also very anxiety producing, you know, our election is coming up and tonight we're the night that, well, tonight, whatever night it is that we're recording (laughs) this, (laughs) 
Um, the evening of this recording is going to be the first presidential debate, and we know that the moderator of the debate, Chris Matthews, is not planning to ask any questions about climate change. And to me, this feels right. just completely insane, like, you know, psychopathic levels of denial, psychological and social and institutional, about the crisis that we're facing because we have so little time to decarbonize our economies and try to halt global warming at a relatively safe level. So, you know, it's just, it's really an onslaught of um, things that are infuriating and things that are terrifying. And um, it's, it's, it's hard to have the endurance for that, but you know, you, you must, or at least I feel like I must, because I feel like fighting against it actually is a way to prove that, you know, it, on some level, human beings must be good. Um, and that there we do have hope that in fighting something might happen, even if we can't see what it might be at the moment. So even though it's exhausting, it's also the, the thing that keeps me going. It, it's, it's where I get my commitment and my sense of endurance, I guess. Right. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying is just this overwhelming sense of dissonance that a lot of us who, who mm -hmm. work in this space or who are just very concerned about the state of the climate and the livability of the, of the future um, is this idea that we see it and we read it and we're quite literally seeing the world on fire and then we turn on the news and we're talking about things that are not that mm -hmm. um, or we're preparing for a presidential debate and campaign and this is happening right moderators not agreeing to include the biggest crisis affronting us ever. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that's quite difficult to square. Um, I wonder how, how do you think, so you mentioned a little that this is what's giving you strength and you're powered by anger, but how do you think your approach to work has changed um, this year and with everything that's that's been going on? Well, I don't really think my approach has changed. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've, always, you know, worked at home. The writing that I do, I do at home in my home office. Um, and that stayed the same. And much of my activism has been in the digital space, um, reaching out to journalists, editors, anchors, and producers through social media, but also through email um, and talking to them on the phone. I mean, I think I've had maybe a grand total of four or five in-person meetings with people who work in media who were trying to move to cover climate change with the urgency it deserves. So for me, my daily life hasn't really changed that much, except for the fact mm -hmm. that I'm now interrupted, you know, dozens of times a day <laughs> by one like minor domestic crisis after another, or even just for a hug, which, you know, right. I welcome, but I'm not someone with like a terrific working memory. So if I'm in the middle of a thought, you know, and my son comes in for a hug, it's wonderful to give him a hug, but then very often I'll turn back to my text and not remember what I was about to say. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and my friends tell me that I should just close and lock the door, but I've never been able to do that. So, um, you know, that's challenging, but that's a minor challenge considering the whole range of things that people are faced with during the pandemic and this ongoing economic crisis and the climate crisis. So for me, I don't think my daily routine has really changed that much. Just the intensity of my feelings and mm -hmm. the urgency I feel in trying to move the needle a little bit towards, um, a culture that is so much less dissonant 
and that actually understands the magnitude of the climate crisis and how little time we have to you know, mobilize everybody to solve it. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's just, it's more of the same, but more of the same sort of, you know, intensified, I would say. Right. Yeah. I mean, this year has been an adjustment for all of us, but anytime mm -hmm. I talk with or think about, uh, working parents at this moment, uh, with juggling family life and education and everything else that comes along, mm -hmm. um, with raising other human beings, it just seems like so much more overwhelming so my hat's off to you um Thank and you. everyone else out there um doing this and doing it so gracefully and so so wonderfully um but i wanted to go back um yes. and talk a little bit about your background because yes. you like you just mentioned your background is in literature um mm -hmm. that's what you got your phd in and what you um studied so so how did the jump happen from that area of study into climate communication and climate work was there a particular moment uh, made a click for you or how did that transition come about in your in your life well I think I always imagined myself as someone who accepted that climate change was real I mean I saw mm -hmm. Vice President Gore's film um um, an inconvenient truth and you know I didn't contest it I accepted it but somehow I always put climate change on the back burner. It felt very distant um, and not at all personal. Um, but after I had a child, that really started to shift for me. Um, you know, while I was on my maternity leave, I had more time to read the paper. And so I sort of read all the way down into science um, journalism and the, into the science sections of the papers that I was reading. And every time I read an article about the climate crisis, I, for some reason, couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, I was kind of an anxious mother. I am an only child, so I never had a younger sibling. I was the first of my friends group to have a baby, and I didn't really feel like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and I wanted very much to protect this like incredibly innocent little being who I had brought onto this planet um, and, you know, do the best for him that I could. And somehow seeing these articles about this planetary emergency that was sort of unfolding in real time um, really struck me, especially because, you know, this date 2100, very often the science has said, mm -hmm. you know, if we do not bring our emissions down to net zero by a certain date, then we will achieve this much warming by 2100. It was sort of this outside, you know, or it's this benchmark that science tends to use to kind of um, discuss projected effects of global warming. And, you know, my son was born in 2010, which means that his life is going to play out over the 21st century. So for him, 2100, you know, if he's lucky, Knockwood, will be around the end of his life. So all of these sort of horrific projections that I would read about in these articles, I realized would be happening over his lifetime. So all of a sudden, the climate crisis became incredibly personal to me. Um, and I started to feel kind of directly responsible to do what I could, bring my training and bring my um, talents such as they are to bear on this crisis. Um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do, um, but I did have a sense 
almost right away that I was going to work on climate communication. Um, from my perspective, um, climate communication seemed to be um, coming out of a kind of sociological approach to um, understanding how people make choices. Um, I didn't see a lot of sort of um, literary criticism being brought to bear on the problem. So, for example, um, in classical rhetoric, which is part of my background because my degree is in Renaissance literature and I'm a Shakespeare scholar by training. And of course, all of these writers in the English Renaissance looked back to classical literature and classical rhetoricians. So, you know, I had to read all of that stuff too. So for, an ex for example, one of these principles in classical rhetoric that um, helped animate, you know, Shakespeare's language and some of the greatest literature in human history is this principle called energeia, which is a Greek term which means, ironically enough, energy or vividness or aliveness. It's about the capacity of language to sort of produce images in our imagination um, and produce emotions in response to those images. And then through those emotions, like desires or aversions to different kinds of behavior. And it seemed to me very often that um, even when climate change was placed in these frames, as they're called in sociology, like, you know, the health frame, what is climate change going to do to our health or the faith frame? Like, how do people of faith understand, mm -hmm. you know, stewardship of the planet or, or whatever the frame might be? To me, I felt like there wasn't enough sort of literary energeia in the climate communication that mm -hmm. I was seeing. So, um, you know, I, I thought a lot about this, but, you know, I didn't really, nobody in the humanities or in my field were really talking about the problem in those terms. They, they were sort of interested in literature through the lens of the Anthropocene, which sort of became a kind of historical period in some sense in the environmental humanities. Um, and climate communications experts were very often just, you know, doing polling and sort of research and focus groups and, and um, not really thinking about it in literary terms. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. So, you know, I started reading the literature, as I have suggested, on communication. I read a lot of books about climate science. I took an online climate science course through the edX platform, which is really this brilliant thing where you can take college level courses for free for certificates. You know, and I even did the climate reality training um, mm -hmm. that Al Gore offers through his climate reality project where, you know, civilians are trained to go into their communities and give climate communications talks and try to raise awareness in their, you know, local communities. Um, but I, I didn't really see my way forward until um, 2017, so quite a long time after I started thinking about the issue. In 2017, the New York Times hired a columnist named Brett Stevens, who was on the record as being like a really inveterate climate denier, um, you know, mm -hmm. who claimed that climate change was really a kind of religion. And I was so, or climate science rather, was really a kind of religion um, that had, that asked us to have faith in something that was false. Um, and I was so horrified that the New York Times, which was the institution that I sort of assumed was the mouthpiece for the reality-based community, 
um, or at least the paper of record. I was so appalled that they thought that climate denial was sort of like still legitimate political commentary in 2017 that I started a petition <laughs> to try to get them to rescind their offer to Stevens because so much of the political project, I think, of getting climate policy passed is to take sort of social license away from climate deniers and to take social license away from the fossil fuel companies and to help everyone understand that these people are actually um, espousing ideas and, and, and doing things that are going to lead to the death of millions, um, if not billions. So I tried to get Brett Stevens fired, essentially. And the petition that I wrote took off like wildfire, so to speak. Um, it was just before the March for Science in DC and then the climate march the week after. And I went down and sort of single-handedly handed out <laughs> Xerox flyers <laughs> about the petition um, to uh, college sustainability groups and asked them to share it in their networks. And then the campaigner from change.org, which was the platform I used, reached out to me and said, well, this is really going somewhere, but you need to be on Twitter to promote it. And like you, I had a real aversion <laughs> to Twitter, ironically enough, because um, I didn't really understand the format. I didn't understand who right. was on there. Like, I, I just, I didn't want any part of it. I was kind of like a Shakespeare scholar and a Luddite, and I didn't even have a television at home. Like, you know, I was not into this whole thing at all. But she insisted um, and she said, this is how people at the New York Times are really going to see the petition because all um, most journalists and most editors and like people in media are on Twitter and this is how they talk to each other. So I went on Twitter to promote the petition and in the process of doing so became connected to some climate scientists who had done their own open letter begging the Times to um, think twice about hiring Stevens because you know, he was espousing climate denial. Um, so, you know, we didn't exactly get Brett Stevens fired. Um, but, you know, we did shake up some of the editorial staff at the opinion page. Um, and I think also we put the times on notice that, that the day that climate denial was going to be considered legitimate was coming to an end. And in any case, what happened to me personally was I became connected to these climate scientists who kind of took me under their wing um, and answered questions um, and started, you know, retweeting me and talking to me on Twitter. And I started to feel like I had a kind of community there. Um, and that built over the next years as, you know, at one point, the climate scientists were not very happy with a journalist named David Wallace Wells, yep. who, yeah, who wrote this article, which became this best-selling book called The Uninhabitable Earth, um, because they thought that what he was doing was kind of exaggerating what the science was saying, because he was using all these literary techniques like hyperbole and compression and, you know, vivid metaphors to talk about all the worst case scenarios. Um, and then, you know, of course, this was like catnip for me. <laughs> so right. I just jumped into this debate, you know, and wrote some blog posts about how it's really important that writers and literary people should be allowed to use their techniques to communicate the climate crisis, that this is not simply a science problem anymore. It's an everything problem. And so everyone has a right to talk about it, you know, in the way that they're trained to do so, as long as they're not like, you know, explicitly lying. And so right. in 
you know, defending David Wallace Wells, of course, who didn't ask me to do any of this and didn't know me from Adam, <laughs> you know, I, I became more connected to some of the climate journalists, um, you know, and in the meantime, I started working on a book about the language of climate change using my expertise as a, as someone who understands how literary techniques are used politically and understands how language resonates across the social sphere and in the media to produce certain political effects. But then finally, in 2018, I also founded an organization called End Climate Silence after listening to NPR one morning for three hours and hearing multiple stories that were clearly about climate change. Um, one about the droughts in the West, which were already a problem years ago. Um, one about the floods in Japan that year that displaced, I think, 3 million people. And then one about self-driving cars, which failed to mention that we have to electrify our transportation system as soon as possible. These three stories were on NPR, which, again, is considered sort of a mouthpiece for the reality-based community. But the announcers who were reporting these stories never even mentioned the words climate change. And it was so surreal and disturbing to listen to that kind of performance of climate silence or climate denial as if climate change weren't happening, that um, I went home and I wrote a thread about it. And the thread went viral. And Emily Atkin, a climate journalist who at that time was at the New Republic, now writes her own newsletter called Heated, which everyone should subscribe to. Anyway, mm -hmm. Emily Atkin picked up the issue and it sort of inspired a conversation among journalists of all varieties on Twitter about climate communication and in the media sphere and why television doesn't really do segments about climate breakdown. Um, and in that process, I realized that what I thought journalists and the news media more broadly should do was stop thinking about climate change as a science story or as an environment story and start yeah. understanding it as the context and indeed the agent of stories they were already reporting every day. And to me, I felt that this, this paradigm shift um, was so necessary that I actually you know, founded this little organization with the explicit mission <laughs> <laughs> to get the news media to connect the dots to climate change and the stories they were already telling about its causes and its effects. Um, so I've been working on that since 2018. Um, I think we had a certain degree of success in our activism directed at print journalists, because I think, um, you know, print journalists are very conscious of what their peers think of them. They're very open to kind of editorial notes, which I am pretty good at giving because I'm used to grading papers as an English <laughs> professor. Um, and, you know, Extinction Rebellion, the New York City, um, the New York City branch of Extinction Rebellion also did a few actions targeting the New York Times, which a lot of various serious people rolled their eyes at because they thought, well, the New York Times has a climate desk. Why should there be activism directed yeah. against them? But I do think that not only does the New York Times now have a climate desk that really is sort of unsurpassed, I think, um, in the kind of journalism they're bringing to bear on this crisis. But they also, I've noticed, increasingly have their journalists in other, um, in other desks and on other beats bring climate change into their stories 
that they're telling in, you know, the world section or the politics section or other sections of the newspaper. And like once the New York Times started to move on that other um, print journalist, print output, um, excuse me, other print, <laughs> other print, what am, why am I blanking on this word? Um, other print outlets also started to mention climate change in stories that weren't necessarily explicitly about climate change. So once mm -hmm. that happened, um, I started focusing on the broadcast news. And in fact, I didn't have any success in that regard at all, because the broadcast news media doesn't care one whit what their viewers think or what the Twitterati thinks, or certainly not what activists think. They only care what their advertisers think. And they were under the impression that climate change was a kind of ratings killer because it's kind of a mm -hmm. bummer and people always have it sort of on the back burner. But I had been seeing so many polls showing that climate change is becoming an increasing concern for American voters, you know, not just Democrats who always have climate change in their top one or two concerns now in most national polls, but also among Republicans and younger Republicans, especially, which of course is the demographic that advertisers are most keen to reach. So we at End Climate Silence did our own polling to see um, if people really did or did not want to see stories about climate change on the television news. And it turns out that a majority of Americans follow climate, or not, excuse me, like a plurality of Americans follow climate change very closely. 38% of Americans follow climate change very closely in the news. And then a majority of Americans follow climate change pretty closely. And overwhelming majorities, 76% think that if there is a connection between extreme weather and climate change, that the broadcast news media should absolutely report it. And also, majorities of Republicans, over 60% of Republicans agree that if there is a connection between extreme weather and climate change, the broadcast news media should report it. And finally, majorities of Americans, 58%, say they would be more likely to watch a news program that covered climate change more frequently. So mm -hmm. our polling came out, and I had an op-ed about this in the Boston Globe, and then a week later... We replicated this poll with data for progress, and the numbers were almost entirely identical. It was really quite uncanny. Um, and then a week after that, Yale University and the George Mason Center for Climate Change Communication and Vice News and Covering Climate Now, another initiative that is partnering with newsrooms to get climate stories in the news, did more polling. And their data overwhelmingly showed that, for example, 67, no, excuse me, their data overwhelmingly showed that Americans want climate change news. For example, 76% of Americans want to know what the presidential candidates are going to do in response to global warming, and they want to hear about those plans in the news. So right. it seems like this idea that people aren't interested in climate change news is out, out, uh, out of date, um, and in fact, not delivering the kind of content to viewers that viewers want, and thereby indirectly not serving their advertisers in the way that their advertisers want to be served. So now our approach with the television stations is to kind of offer a carrot 
or to show that there is <laughs> desire and to try to convince them that they should be selling a better product and no longer to try to morally shame them into doing the right thing because they are absolutely shameless. Right. Anyway, so that's the whole <laughs> narrative of how I ended up here talking to you today. Jenny, this is so fascinating. And let me say, one of the things that jumps out about your story the most to me is that we often say and hear in the climate space that we really need everyone, right? No matter your expertise, your background, we need you. This transition and this transformation is going to take all of us um, with myriad levels of expertise. Mm -hmm. But you quite literally embody that, right? No, <laughs> you, where, no I, I mean it because you're a scholar of Renaissance literature, right? Yeah. Who saw this problem and quite literally sat down and said, how can my expertise and experience be used here? which would be a leap many people wouldn't even be able to make, um, right? But I think your ability, and we'll be sure to link your Medium blog post because I was reading in prep for them and they're absolutely fascinating. Yeah, um, thank you. And it, it's really brilliant to to have watched your story and, and how this happened and how you're now contributing in such yeah. invaluable ways into this discourse. Um, I'm someone who's super interested in climate communications. I actually did my dissertation for my master's in specifically climate communications. And oh what, my goodness. Yeah, what we've gotten wrong and the huge opportunities that we have to kind of change that. And so it's been a topic that I've been fascinated by. And, and I think reading your takes... Um, Maybe most specifically the heroic narrative, yes. of how you bridge right, how you bridge the Renaissance literature or the classical literature into what we can learn to tell climate stories now, is so brilliant and fresh. Um, and so, do you mind talking a little bit about how you are currently applying your training and your expertise? into finding a niche within this crisis in how you can best contribute um, to move the needle forward? Well, I do formal research into climate communication, and mm -hmm. um, it's a little idiosyncratic because it's highly interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. Like I will bring in literary theory, but also clinical psychology and sociology to come up with proposals for communicators about how they can best communicate the crisis, not only to educate people, but also to inspire them to bring their own talents to the climate movement right. and to make the biggest tent possible so that we can, you know, put a ton of political pressure on our elected officials and get them to lead this transition. Because of course, as we know, um, this is this is a systemic issue that will take you know, massive public-private partnerships in order to rebuild the economy in a way that will allow us to have a future. Um, so, for example, um, you talked about these um, medium posts that you've read from a few years ago. So the one about what Renaissance literature tells us about climate change communication is actually a paper I gave at the um, AGU, the American Geophysical Union, um, annual meeting in 2017. And that argues that a lot of, well, it's been a few years since I've read this or thought about <laughs> it. So let me try to encapsulate it quickly. But it argues that the kind of um, structure of the narrative that climate communicators had been using to date was counterproductive. Um, because the structure of the narrative that climate communicators have been using 
is fundamentally a comedic structure, which is to say that you present a, a situation and then the situation somehow goes awry. And then at the end, there's some sort of resolution to the situation. So it's the typical sort of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back at the end. So mm -hmm. very often climate communication will talk about like, you know, here's this problem and here's what's going to happen if we don't solve this problem, but here's why we can have hope. And then it'll list sort of all the technical solutions that will enable us to decarbonize if we sort of gather the political will together, right? So that structure, ending your communication with hope, actually is counterproductive, I'm arguing, because it allows people to feel resolved. Like it, it allows them to kind of um, resolve the uncomfortable emotions that your story is generating, and it allows them to feel like, um, things are going to turn out all right in the end um, and to kind of displace the agency of saving our planet onto technology or machines instead of right. inspiring them to take responsibility to act civically and politically to generate the change themselves. So what I'm trying to suggest that communicators do instead of using this comedic structure I'm trying to suggest that they think of epic literature as their model. So what you do is you say, so like, for example, the, um, the archetypical epic for Renaissance writers was the Aeneid. So the Aeneid is the story in which uh, Aeneas, who... Um, has been fighting in the Trojan war at the resolution of the Trojan war, like basically like sails through the Mediterranean and ends up founding Rome. So it's about sort of like coming from the end of one civilization and going through all these trials and overcoming all these failures in order to found another civilization. And what you need in those narratives is you need a clear antagonist or a series of antagonists. And God knows we have those in the climate space, <laughs> right? We have the fossil fuel industry, we have the utilities, we have the lobbyists, we have the politicians, we have the people in the media who are denying the problem. So we have these clear antagonists who need to be overcome in order for us to band together and found a new world based on economies that run on safe energy. And to become, to participate in this kind of epic narrative, you need to find qualities in yourself that will allow you to endure the fear mm -hmm. of reading stories about climate change, the fear of thinking about what's gonna happen to you or your children, the grief that you may feel all of these negative emotions, you need a way of coping with them, but there's this kind of like stoic, heroic, but also sort of communitarian subjectivity that these narratives construct, where you have, you, you continue to do your duty because the other people you're with expected of you and because you feel called to do it. And this, I think, is what communicators should really try to inspire 
in people, not just the sort of reassurance that there is hope because solar panels are now cheaper. (laughs) That just allows you to sort of like displace it on the technical, displace the solving of the problem onto the technocrats. No, this is a, this is a life or death political struggle. And every single one of us needs to find it in ourselves to take it on and contribute to solving it in whatever way we can, to the best of our ability, according to whatever talents we've been given and whatever you know capacity we have because of our social structured position to contribute to the movement. So that's that argument that I made in that paper. <laughs> and I think what I take away from that so much, it's something we've talked about in the show a lot um, because it's, it's a question that comes up a lot, right? Is what gives you hope? What makes right. you hopeful? And I think In previous episodes um, and last season specifically, we talked a lot about this and it's the idea that it's not about hope itself, but it's the agency that we each have to work for that hopefulness. Um, And it also reminds me of um, a piece by Dr. Anna Elizabeth Johnson, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. you've been familiar, the release of her book uh, just Mm -hmm. recently. And she wrote a piece that's saying pretty much F hope right? Mm -hmm. It's about the work that we have to put in, in order to have a livable future versus Mm -hmm. the hope that you think of outside yourself and just Mm -hmm. living kind of there um, as a passive way that you don't have to get involved in. Um, So I think it's, it's absolutely brilliant and fascinating. And I wonder if you could tell us how you are now applying that into your work with broadcast journalism or print media i think we've seen a huge change um, you do in, well <laughs> that's good definitely. to hear <laughs> um i think just a couple of weeks back right um on the very front page of the new york times climate change and the washington posts and right with the wildfires yeah. i think it's something that we weren't used to be seeing just a couple yeah. of years back um so I wonder where, where you stand now and how, where you see the biggest windows of opportunity to continue, hopefully on this path, to changing those narratives. Well, I think that with the release of these polls showing that American voters really do want to hear about climate change in the news, um, there is going to be, as long as we keep these polls in front of the faces of producers mm-hmm. and executives at the television stations. Um, and as long as, you know, these polls are borne out by their own internal um, analytics about their own ratings, I do think they're, we're going to continue to see a shift. Um, I know the week after my Boston Globe uh, op-ed came out, there were nine segments about climate change in the primetime broadcast news shows, network and CNN, which was absolutely unprecedented. And granted, it mm-hmm. was you know also the week that President Trump went to California and explicitly denied climate change again, and right. he's packing Noah with climate deniers. And so there was a lot of stuff going on. But it is also the case that you know we would not have even seen that maybe a year ago. So. Hopefully, their own analytics from those segments bear out the polling. I know that um, people in Europe are very interested in replicating these polls, starting in the UK and then going through Europe, and I'm going to be partnering um, with them to do that. And it seems from what I have from from what I've seen on Twitter and from conversations that I've also had 
with fellow activists that Greta Thunberg is getting interested in the problem of mm-hmm. climate change in the media because it she's coming to see, which I agree with, that this is what will raise awareness enough or this is the only thing <laughs> that has the chance of raising awareness enough to generate this mass movement that will allow us to put sort of a countervailing political force um, on our politics that hopefully will be stronger than the force of the fossil fuel industry and sort of entrenched interests and inertia and business as usual. So she started to get interested in climate change in the media. And as soon as she's interested in something, then there's going to be a massive transformation because she's an extremely, you know, talented activist who's inspired the whole world. So um, I think the way I think of my work mostly is sort of, you know, tapping at a wall with a little hammer um, (laughs) and trying to make a crack in the wall to let the light in. Um, and hopefully making a big enough crack one day that low the wall crumbles. And then all of a sudden, you know, the sun can stream across the landscape entirely. But, um, I mean, that's kind of a clumsy metaphor, but you know what I mean? I like that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so for me, you know, I don't, I don't even necessarily have goals that Mm -hmm. I strive for. My goal is to sort of work as hard as I can on this every day and do my best so that at the end of the day, I can feel like I did my best and, you know, I did everything I could to leave my son a habitable planet and all children really. So I try not to think about the outcomes too hard because Mm -hmm. that's just a way to sort of make yourself depressed and exhausted. I just try to control, (laughs) focus on what I can control, control my own behavior and just work as hard as I can. And I think that's, that's the best that we can all do and hope for. Right. Exactly. Um, And it's, it's kind of funny because we do see progress in some ways and then you turn around and there's another wildfire or there's another hurricane or there's another climate denier on, you know, the White right. House. <laughs> um, right. So it's kind of this tug and pull um, of, of moving forward and understanding that in the whole, in the aggregate, I think we are moving in the right direction while at the same time reckoning with the fact that we, we just do not have the time or the bandwidth to, to spare. Um, that's right. So that's something that a lot of, of activists I speak to and scientists and even journalists mm-hmm. um, have to to grapple with and recognize mm-hmm. um but you alluded a little to this right but i wanted to talk a little more about what are we hoping for because communication mm-hmm. is not a means in itself but it's right. a means to an end That's so right. in in the ideal world in which we get this right and we understand that every story is somewhat a climate story that everyone mm-hmm. cares about this issue some people just haven't realized that yet mm-hmm. What, in your view, is that end goal of of a mass amount of people or a critical mass who understand it? But but beyond that, what is beyond understanding towards engagement and and ultimately transformation? I think that the first step would be to have the news media covering this crisis with the urgency it deserves. 
So Mm -hmm. explaining that, I mean, bringing climate change into every story where it appears, actually explicitly connecting the dots between what they're reporting and the climate breakdown that we're already beginning to see. But then also the media repeatedly explaining that we have, you know, less than two decades to bring our global emissions down to net zero. And even then we would have to sort of suck billions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere to even have a chance of halting warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius. So just communicating the information over and over and over and over so people understand what we're facing and explaining that what we're seeing in California is not an anomaly. It's not something that's going to happen and then not happen again. Right. 2020 is the coolest year on aggregate that we're going to ever see again in any of our lifetimes. So explaining what our children are facing in a really kind of local and personal way, explaining the science behind that, that I think is, you know, not adequate because of course people don't process information outside of their tribal commitments, outside of their psychological complexes. You know, there's a lot of more work that needs to be done in order to have people accept this information and turn that into action. But that kind of media communication is the first step. But then in addition, you take social license away from climate denial so that it's, it's too, it's as shameful to be a climate denier as it is to be a Nazi. And I I know that Mm -hmm. that is, you know, the fact that that might sound hyperbolic still means that we're not where we need to be because in fact it should be as shameful to be a climate denier as it is to be a Nazi and to take social license away from the fossil fuel industry and also to make it shameful to perform your consumption of fossil fuels. Like all of Instagram Mm -hmm. is about like, you know, these wonderful travel extravaganzas that these influencers go on. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of celebrating the fossil fuel economy without shame and it needs to end. But then, so those things also need to happen. But what really needs to happen is that people need to put sustained political pressure on their elected officials with Mm -hmm. civil disobedience, with ongoing strikes, not just one day a year or two days a year, but ongoing strikes, civil disobedience, mass movements that force our governments to lead the transition to a net zero economy. So it needs to be as pressing and as inescapable as the COVID pandemic is now, because even the COVID pandemic, it's, you know, it's, it's so polarized that, you know, fully 40% of the United States isn't even like properly masking up because they think the scientific threat is, or the the threat is exaggerated by scientists for political purposes. So, you know, we are, we are faced, we're faced with tremendous opposition. There is an awful lot of work to do, but this is the thing. We don't know how social tipping points really work, right? Mm -hmm. So 
if you look at a lily pond, for example, and that lily pond has sort of one lily on it, okay? And within 30 days, that pond is gonna be entirely covered by lily pads, right? And every day, the number of lily pads is going to double. Mm-hmm. On day 29, the pond is only gonna feel half full, right? It's only at the very last moment that the pond is full. And right until the last moment, you're only going to see that you're halfway there. So what we have to just do is get up every day and move the needle in whatever way that we've taken it on to do it for ourselves and in our communities and in our institutions and in our politics. But we just have to do that work over and over and over and trust, have faith that living according to those values and working out of our love for our children, this planet, whatever it is that makes us feel like grateful to be alive, working from that place every day, the tipping point is going to come. And it's not going to come if we don't do that. So you just have to keep trying, keep working, keep recruiting people as much as you can, and just keep talking about climate change with your friends, your acquaintances, your coworkers in every scenario, because the thing that enables denial to flourish is climate silence. And this is why we need to end climate silence above all. Um, that was absolutely brilliant. And I think you, you are, you're right, right? Like everything you're saying is just like resonating so much because we only have that, right? We only have where we are, how we are, and with, with our skill set, and then the choice to make what are we going to do with that in order to contribute to the change we know needs to happen. That's exactly um, right. I'd love for us to give us um, a piece of advice, or is there something you wish people could start doing right now immediately to change the ways they talk about the climate crisis. For me personally, it's, it's become a huge pet peeve when anyone talks about, quote unquote, saving the earth or sa- mm-hmm. saving the planet, right? Because it's like, no, that, that's never what it was about. It was quite literally about preserving this, the, the ability to keep life on earth, our life. Um, right, exactly. It's about saving us. Exactly. Um, is there something that you think we can practically change almost immediately for anyone listening who wants to be a better communicator um, in service of this transformation? Uh, I mean, I have so many pieces of advice (laughs) I could keep you here all day. I mean, I'm writing a book right now. I'm working Mm -hmm. on a book about the language of climate change, right? Um, About how the way we're thinking and talking about it is kind of misrepresenting the problem, giving us an Mm -hmm. accurate picture of it in our imaginations and sort of, you know, killing our desire for the solutions. So one thing that I'm, well, let me just give you this advice um, (laughs) to all of our, all of your listeners and everyone in the media sphere, stop saying, I believe in climate change. Stop Mm. asking people if they believe in climate change. Mm. Um, because to use the verb believe is to implicitly represent climate change as a fiction, right? Right. You don't, you don't, you don't, you believe in, or a fiction or a, a, a theological tenet. So you believe in God 
or you believe in the Easter bunny. You don't know God or know the Easter bunny, right? You know that two plus two equals four. You don't believe in two plus two equals four. So this locution, Donald Trump doesn't believe in climate change or sir, do you believe in climate change? This locution actually seeds ground to the climate deniers who say that climate change is fictional, who call themselves skeptics, right? Because it's perfectly legitimate to be skeptical about belief. It's not legitimate to be skeptical about something that's an established truth. So don't say believe in, say, do you understand climate change? Do you (laughs) accept the reality of climate change? Um, Some other verb that represents climate change as an established reality that you have to either understand, accept, or do you have a plan to combat climate change? Anything except believe. That is like that is one of my biggest pet peeves. Um, so don't don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I fully share on that. Yeah, and it's funny how even well-intentioned, well-meaning people trying to communicate don't understand these like kind of potholes that we fall into um, that compound these issues of of denial. Of science. You know, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I feel like it's not just sort of climate. The problem does not only lie with the climate deniers explicitly manipulating right. language. The problem also lies with the fact that the language that advocates use often reinforces the message of the climate deniers inadvertently. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, there are certain little words like we, for example, I have an article in Slate about this, and it's, you know, might turn out to be the preface of my book. But people say, you know, we are causing climate change. And Mm. on the face of it, that seems like a true statement because, of course, this round of climate change is caused by human activity. So human beings are causing climate change. But that we is a ideological fiction, which hides the fact that billions of people on this planet have absolutely no hand in causing climate change and that there are millions of people on this planet who are trying to stop climate change by doing everything they can to end the fossil fuel era. So instead of thinking that, you know, we are doing this or we are causing climate change, we have to think of climate change as something that we are being prevented from undoing. Mm. So the way that our language uh, represents climate change to us, the way it paints it in our imaginations is so often inaccurate and it so often misrepresents the problem, makes it seem distant, misidentifies who the responsible parties are. And so I think also we need a kind of um, reset of our entire lexicon so that we can move forward being really clear about what the problem is, who the antagonists are, and how much better things will be for all of us once we solve this problem. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful to have people like yourself doing the, the critical work to help us undo these these issues and these biases that have been built up for so many decades of talking about this issue and politicizing this issue um, that we need to rethink. And the beauty also is when when I talk about some of these things or some of these potholes like we were talking about and Mm -hmm. there's like a light bulb that goes off in people and they're like oh that makes so much sense but I had never thought about it in that way um and that's what's kind of beautiful to me is that those people are going to walk away and forward with a new understanding of how we also could be 
preventing this problem for, from compounding or getting even worse by the simple That's language right. that we use. That's right. That's absolutely right. But really, ultimately, if you want to talk about climate change, but don't think you know how, that's fine. You don't mm. have to say the right thing either. Like most of these pieces of advice I have are for, you know, professionals in the climate space or journalists or, you know, people who communicate in the media sphere. But like for, you know, for people who have not taken this on yet, it doesn't really matter. Just talk about your feelings. Talk about your just fears. Start, yeah. Just just break the silence and bring it up. And it's awkward and it's challenging, but that's heroic <laughs> to be the person in your social circle who's sort of bringing up the thing that nobody wants to talk about. That in itself is a form of heroism because it takes courage. So, you know, have the courage to just talk about climate change. Don't worry if you're not doing it right. There is no right way. Just get in there and start saying you're worried about this or you want to solve it or you're mad at Trump or you, you, <laughs> you feel conflicted about your vacations or whatever it is. Just, just like, let's just talk about it. That's really the best way to start. You're absolutely right. Dr. Gunther, I could literally speak to you for hours on end. I find <laughs> your work and your brain so fascinating. Aww. And I'm so grateful um, for, for your time today. I know it's coming to an end. But in finishing, I must say this episode is scheduled to air on the week of the election. So two oh days <laughs> after, I know, two days after this year's election. Um, so maybe in closing, is there anything, any thoughts for our future selves um, listening back to this on November 6th? I deeply fear that on November 6th, we are still going to be in the midst of the election. Mm -hmm. that we're not going to have a resolution yet. Um, I pray that election night will be a landslide for Joe Biden and we won't have to continue to worry about the outcome of the voting or any court decisions or anything like that. Um, but I just want to let everybody know that no matter what the outcome of the election has been or will be, right, your taking climate action is about who you are and how much you love being alive and the people in your family and in your community and this miraculous planet that somehow we've been given the gift to live on. So don't let yourself feel despair. Please grieve because grieving is the flip side of your love. Grieve away mm -hmm. if you have to. But don't feel despair because this is about proving every day that there are people on this planet who live in love and not in greed, who live for the future and not for today, and who are your allies. We're all in this community together and you're not alone. That was so beautiful. Um, and and <laughs> you, those words Maria. are such a gift. And thank you very much. Um, for your time and for your work and, and for everything that you do. Maria, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was really good to talk to you. Absolutely. Take care of yourself. You too.
Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olana, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X C-H-A-N-G-E org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 